Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Massimo Pigliucci, the author of the new book, The Quest for Character. Professor Pigliucci has a PhD in evolutionary biology and a PhD in philosophy. He currently is the K.D. Arani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. His research interests include the philosophy of science, the nature of pseudoscience, and practical philosophies like Stoicism. In the conversation, Massimo and I discuss whether virtue can be taught, how to define or think about virtue, why we have a duty to cultivate our character, the connection between character and your philosophy of life, how to see yourself as a citizen of the world, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Massimo Pigliucci. Massimo, welcome back to In Search of Wisdom. Hi, it's a pleasure to be back. Glad to have you back, and today we're going to be talking about your great new book, The Quest for Character, so I'm excited about it. But before we get into the book, I wanted to ask maybe a halfway personal question, if I could, Massimo. Sure. You've been on the show before. You know that I'm a, I'm a fan of the, of the work that you do. You've got a podcast, Philosophy as a Way of Life, a Stoic Meditations, another podcast that's Short Reflections books like this one, articles, you're also a professor, <laughs> you know, how and why do you do what you do, if you wouldn't mind sharing? <laughs> well, I took to heart the advice that my Napolitan grandmother gave me when I was a, a little kid. She said, you will have time to rest once you're dead. <laughs> it's working out fine. Now, look, it, it's, a, it's a fair question. And the answer really is that's pretty much all I do. I mean, I have a personal life. You know, I'm married. I have a you know, daughter who now is an adult. So I do have a personal life. I have friends and things like that. But pretty much I am lucky enough that I can, in fact, full-time devote my life to writing, you know, reading and teaching. That's really what I do. Most of it is for City College of New York, and it's paid by them. But they are very happy whenever I do outreach and things like the conversation we're having now. And so it really, in a sense, kind of indirectly, is in fact part of my of my job. And uh, you know, the lucky the lucky bit here is is that I've been able somehow to manage to do as a job what I would have wanted to do anyway. Let me follow up if I if I could. You know, you write articles on, on Medium, for, for example, now a Substack and things like that. Yeah. But oftentimes people might put a comment or question, and you'll take the time to respond to, to questions, which I'm sure, you, you know, so many of your readers really appreciate. You know, with all that you have going on, I'm sure it would be easy to 
to maybe make the choice of, of not taking the time to do that. Why? What's the driving force maybe behind that that teacher mentorship role for you? Well, it, you know, not not to respond to people's comments when they're genuinely interested in you know sort of engaging <laughs> and learning, because then there are some that are, who are not, uh, which is why I quit social media entirely. Right? I'm no longer on either Facebook or, or Twitter because the, the ratio of people who were not interested in pursuing <laughs> you know constructive uh, discussions was was too high. But, you know, not to do that with readers who bother reading my articles and sometimes supporting me on, on Medium or, or Substack or, or things like that. It would be like not answering questions from my students at City College. It's just mm. deliver the, the, the lecture and then go out and have a cappuccino. It's like, no. Yes, it would definitely be easier, for sure. But I, I think it would be unethical. I really do think of it as, a, as an unethical choice. Besides, I actually do enjoy engaging with people because you do learn from your readers. You know, you learn from everybody if you pay attention, including, you know, your college students or even pre-college students if you have them. But especially from readers that follow publications and blogs or podcasts, these are people who actually often have read quite a bit, just sometimes just as much as I have on these topics. So, they they'll challenge me or or they'll you know you know in a friendly way in a, again in a constructive way and i've changed my mind on a couple of things as a result of these challenges and in many other cases i have refined what i wanted to do and what i was thinking as a result of these kinds of interactions so it's not only i think the right thing to do but it's actually a good interesting thing hmm. well love it appreciate you sharing a, a, a little bit about that massimo I enjoyed in the beginning of the book, you, you write something that, that made me laugh a, a little bit. So I thought we would start there. You write, so what did Socrates really think about whether virtue can be taught? Well, that's complicated. <laughs> why, why is it not as straightforward as, as one might think? Well, it's complicated because Socrates actually changed his mind. You know, we're talking about talking to other people and changing your mind. So Socrates apparently changed his mind. There is a platonic dialogue, the, the Meno, where Socrates raises the question, in fact, one of his friends raises the questions of, you know, can, can virtue be taught? And Socrates says, well, let's take a look. And in the end, he says, well, maybe in theory, but I don't see any teachers of of virtue. I see teachers of many other things and not of, of virtue. You know, the, the sophists pretend that they're teaching virtue, but they're really not. And so since there are no teachers, you know, I, I had to conclude that this is something that simply cannot be taught. Otherwise, somebody would have found a way to, to do it. So that's a fairly negative conclusion, right? But then there is another dialogue, platonic dialogue again, the Protagoras, which is dedicated to a sophist, in fact. Protagoras was one of the major sophists of the time. So typically, Socrates' arch enemies, right? But Protagoras actually insists with Socrates that, of course, virtue, uh, virtue can be taught. It is, it is a skill, and it can be taught. Now, the typical reader of Platonic Dialogues will look at that and will say, oh, I know what's coming. You know, this is a, a sophist saying that now, now, Socrates is going to show that the sophist is, is wrong and, and he's going to reach the same conclusion. But instead, by the end of the dialogue, surprisingly, Socrates has changed his mind. He, he agrees with Protagoras. He says, I, you've got a good point there. You made a good point. And Protagoras makes a number of arguments 
in favor of the notion that the, uh, that virtue can and should be taught. And he basically says it's like it's a techne, what, what Greek, the Greeks call a techne. It's a, te- it, a technique. It's something that you learn by, by looking at people who are doing it and by practicing. So imagine, in fact, the analogy there is with learning music, right? So imagine, Protagoras says, that the survival of the city depends on everybody playing music. You, make, you, you, you can be sure that we will have a lot of music teaching programs put <laughs> in, you know, in place because our survival depends on it. Now, does that mean that everybody's going to become a Mozart as a result of these, these programs? No, of course not. Some people have an, attitude, an aptitude for music, and they are, in fact, Mozarts, and they will improve. They will still improve because even a Mozart, even a prodigy, will improve if, if, it is, if he's well taught. But they will improve rather little. Some will improve a lot because they have some level of aptitude, but not quite as high as a Mozart. And then some other people barely will be able to, you know, to, to play a recognizable tune, but they will still be doing better than they were before. The same goes with virtue. So virtue is the kind of thing that has a, a bit of theory, just like music, right? It, if you, if you want to play an instrument, learning a little bit about musical theory will help. It's not, it's not, it's not a minor thing. But most of it is practice. And how do you learn that practice? Well, you go to a good master, to somebody who plays the music well, who can teach you, can correct you about how to play the instrument. And then you just spend hours and hours and hours and hours doing it, right? And of course, not only Protagoras was one of the the teachers of the time, but Socrates himself turns out to be one of those teachers, right? They have a different approach. They do it differently, but nevertheless. And so the basic idea, therefore, is that, yes, uh, virtue can be taught, but you, you better start. It's hard to teach virtue to you know somebody in midlife in the middle of midlife crisis or something like that. And you need to be careful about where you learn your theory and and who you're going to pick as your teacher in terms of practice. Again, to use another analogy, how did you learn sculpt, sculpt, sculpting and and painting in the Renaissance? You went to a, a master's workshop and learned from the master himself and from his students, right? But it was very. It, it would make a difference whether you went to Michelangelo or Leonardo on the one hand, or you know the schmuck around the corner who doesn't really know very well and and, and makes a barely a living out of it. You, you learn much better from a Michelangelo. Well, I love it. That's a great intro into the into the book. Before we get any further, maybe we could define a, a couple terms. How should we think about virtue today, or define it? Yeah, that's a good question because one of the problems with virtue and writing about virtue is that most people in the Western world, at least, if they hear the word virtue, they hear something stuffy and something that is clearly influenced by 2,000 years of Christian tradition. So they start thinking about purity and chastity and things like that. No, that's not what we're talking about. Those are virtues. Those are part of the, some of the Christian virtues, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Greco-Roman virtues. There were a number of them. Aristotle lists 12, I think, for instance. But the four fundamental ones are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is really good and what is not good for you. So what, what should be your objectives, your goals, your, your priorities, things like that. That's practical wisdom. Courage is the courage to do the right thing, even though it may cost you. 
justice is what tells you what that right thing is, and typically it boils down to behaving towards other people the way in which you would like them to behave toward you, so with fairness, with respect, etc. Et and then temperance is a matter of doing things in the right amount, neither too much nor too little. So that's the, that's the kinds of things we're, we're talking about. Now, virtues are character traits, and a character trait is essentially a disposition to act in a certain way, regardless of circumstances. There is some modern research that is actually put into question the, the very notion of virtue. A lot of psychologists have argued that actually people react to circumstances very differently, not in any kind of predictable way that would indicate the existence of, a, of an underlying virtue. But then more recent research turns out to sort of cut down to size those kind of findings. So it turns out that, yes, that it is true that people do respond to circumstances differently, sometimes unpredictably, because they're responding to things that they are not even aware of. And I'll give you an example in just a second. But it is also true that, you know, if you are described typically by your friends as generous, meaning that you spend your time or maybe even your money helping other people, then more or less it will be true that that's what you do regardless of circumstances. You might not do it all the time. You might not do it consistently you know, to the same level. But if you are described as a generous person, that means that more likely than not, you will, in fact, act generously. The exceptions here are interesting, however. And so the typical exceptions are situations where psychologists have demonstrated that factors that we're not even aware of will markedly influence our behavior in either positive or negative ways. For instance, the bystander effect. The bystander effect is a situation where if you are, let's say, in a, in a shopping mall or in a you know, kind of public place and you see somebody in distress, like you know, on the floor, for instance, clearly ha having some kind of physical problem, you are much more likely to intervene if you're alone or if you're not surrounded immediately by, by people than if you're surrounded by people, none of whom does anything. If you are part of a crowd and nobody's doing anything, you will very likely not intervene. And likely the reason you won't intervene is because you, you start thinking, wait a minute, why is nobody else doing anything here? Maybe there is a trick. Maybe this is a situation where I shouldn't be doing anything. If I start doing something, then I'm going to look like a fool. And you don't want to look like a fool, so you're not going to do anything. Right? Now, that has nothing to do with virtues or character. It just has to do with a particular situation. You are alone versus you are in the company of people who are not doing anything. But the good news is that research also shows that if people are made aware of the bystander effect, that is, they're told, look, here's what happens under these circumstances, then the next time that it happens to them, they say, oh, wait a minute, I'm being, I'm being actually, I'm behaving according to the bystander effect. I don't want to do that. There, there may actually be a person here in distress, and even if it's not the case, even if it's a joke, so what? After all, what's so embarrassing about you know, trying to help somebody, even if other people don't do it? So the current research shows that, yes, there is such a thing as character and, and character dispositions, that is, virtues, but it's also true that these are very much affected by the circumstances in which we find ourselves, which means that we need to learn about those circumstances and the effect that they have on, on us. How does the philosophy of life 
come into play here. Our last conversation was was mostly on that, so people can go back and listen. But I, I know, obviously, you have an interest in philosophy as a way of life. So can we cultivate character without a coherent philosophy of life? Good question. No, I don't think so. Now, philosophy, a philosophy of life is, a, in a sense, it's a framework that helps you navigate the world and, and how to act in the world. It's, it helps you set your priorities, what is important and what is not important. It guides you in terms of action, you know, so you should be doing certain things, you're not doing certain other things, and so on and so forth. So, and since character is, in fact, ultimately about action, it's about making certain decisions to act in a certain way or not to act in another, another way. Even if you don't think you have a philosophy of life, or you haven't adopted sort of formally a philosophy of life, in reality, a good psychologist would be able to observe you for some time and then say, oh, yeah, that guy is following that, but, you know, this, this philosophy because this is the way in which he's acting. And my suggestion, I guess, is that since we're all going to act according to a philosophy of life, whether we know it or not, we might as well be aware of it and work on it. Because once you're aware of it, you might, you might occasionally stop and say, well, maybe this philosophy of life is actually not working for me. Or maybe there are things that I need to change to, to, to tweak a little bit and make it, make it better. So being aware of what sort of philosophical framework you're using, whether you inherited it from your parents, typically religions, religions are a type of philosophy of life, most of us grew up in a religious household or environment, and therefore you kind of by default adopt whatever religion you grew up with. Some people then leave that religion, either consciously or, or sort of by attrition, so to speak. But nevertheless, they still eventually adopt some kind of other framework. They don't, you know, pe most people don't act at random. And so it's, it, it might pay to, to, at least once in a while, stop and say, well, what am I doing here? Why am I doing it? And as soon as you do that, you're engaging in, in actually confronting your philosophy of life. Mm. Let me ask a question about the cultivation of, of character. I've heard you describe a philosophy of life in, in three parts of the metaphysics, maybe how the world works, ethics, or you know the virtues you, you just discussed, and then exercises or practices. Right. Do you put these three areas, are, are they all equal in the cultivation of character? Is there, is there one that we might neglect in your observations of, of modern society? Well, well, modern society, unfortunately, neglects all three of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that might be problematic. Look, they have, I think, different weights, right? So it's not... So I think that a philosophy, a good practitioner of a philosophy of life spends more time doing exercises or actually practicing things, you know, actually putting into practice things, and a little less about thinking about metaphysics, for instance. And then thinking about ethics comes a little in between because you cannot really act properly unless you think about ethics in a, in a certain way. However, to some extent, that's kind of misleading. Meaning, you know, if you want to portion percentages, let's say, I would say, well, let's say a good philosophy of life might be 10% metaphysics, you know, 20% ethics, and, and whatever is left, 70% practice. However, that's a little misleading. That's like saying that I'm building a house and I'm using an alternation of bricks and, and, and lime. And then at the end, you ask me, well, 
how much weight in, in weight in in lime versus bricks. I can tell you that there is a number there, right? There, there, but, but that doesn't tell you how the, ho- the house is put together. Just because the lime proportionally accounts for much less weight than the, than the uh, bricks, that doesn't mean it's not important. <laughs> In fact, it's crucial. Without the lime, yeah. the bricks are not going to hold and you're not going to have a house. So I do think that the three components are, in a sense, all necessary, even though they may not be you might not be paying attention equally to the three of them. Why? Well, because if you don't have some level of understanding of how the world works, you're probably going to make mistakes. And I'm talking about really practical mistakes, right? So if you don't have any, you know, since we're still, unfortunately, in a pandemic, if you don't have a bare minimum understanding of, of pandemics and vaccines and stuff like that, you might make a mistake. You might genuinely think that it's not important to get vaccinated, for instance, or something like that. Well, that's, that can have con- serious consequences on you and, and, and your loved ones. If you don't think about ethics, that is how to... Ethics in, for the Greco-Romans is really about how to live your life, meaning what priorities and goals you should have, as well as how to interact with other people. Well, if you don't have some idea of those things, mm-hmm. again, you're going to act randomly, right? If I, don't, if I don't know what I should prioritize, then how am I going to make decisions about how to spend my time? You know, what kind of job to get or not to get? What kind of people to hang around or not to hang around? And, and so on and so forth. So, so those three really are completely interrelated. Now, the third component, the exercises, a lot of people don't necessarily do exercises. They just live their life, right? And that's fine. It certainly can be done. But I would argue that doing the exercises, you know, in other words, doing things like, for instance, meditation or exercises in self-deprivation, you know, things like fasting and stuff like that. Those are proven to be effective. That is, if the goal, if your goal is to improve your life by changing your character, by working on your character, well, then the best way to work on your character is by actually doing certain things repeatedly. Continuously, because they, until they become a habit, that's something that Aristotle, for instance, understood very well. And so the exercises are meant to help you do that sort of thing. It's it's like, you know, do I need to go to the gym or to go running in order to stay physically fit? No, I can stay physically fit in other ways, so long as I do some kind of exercise, right? <laughs> so, so long as I do some kind of, of of physical activity. And going to the gym or, or going running on a regular basis is simply a very easy and effective way to get me to, to do some exercise. Do we have a, a duty or an obligation to cultivate our character? I was, I was reading the book and I was thinking of a passage in Meditations of Marcus Aurelius wrestling with, do I get out of bed? And coming right. to this duty or obligation, but maybe you could apply that that same thing to to many different facets of life. But h- how do you see that? I do think we have a duty or an obligation to improve our character because, again, character means making the right decisions or better decisions, and it means interacting better with other people. Now, one could obviously logically say, I don't give a damn about other people. I don't care about interacting with other people. Well, that's fine. I mean, there, there's, that's uh, certainly a possibility. But in that case, you are obviously a sociopath. And, you know, you probably guarantee not to get a lot of friends and not to get a lot of help when you need it and so on and so forth. You're not a, you're not a good member of the human cosmopolis in that sense. 
ethics in general, I think, is best understood the way in which British author and philosopher Philippa Foote understood it as a set of conditional imperatives, meaning a conditional imperative is an if-then kind of statement. If I want to be well-regarded by other people, then I should act in certain ways. If I want to be a good member in good standing of the human cosmopolis, then I should be helpful to others as well. If I want to be a good father, then I should be paying attention to my kids. If I want to be a good partner, then I should be you know, loving and caring with my partner, etc., etc., etc. Now, all of these are if. If you don't care about being a good partner or a good father or a good citizen, yeah, that's an option. <laughs> but your life isn't going to be that, that pretty because human beings are eminently social beings. And so when you, what you do, if you don't care about all of those things, you essentially become, uh, you know, your own thing in your own universe. And uh, you're not going to have a good life, very likely. Mm. I generally think about what are the obstacles to wh whatever it is in some of these conversations. And you just mentioned one that I was thinking of, of the person that is essentially seeing themselves as an individual, not connected to this larger whole. How do we change that? You know, how do we begin to go from that point, which I think is many people that, you know, maybe there's different degrees, but I think that probably applies to many people that they don't necessarily feel deeply connected to the larger whole. How do we get from that point to realizing our, our connection? That's a good question. There are a couple of ways. I mean, to, to, to some extent, a lot there hinges on your upbringing, right? Mm -hmm. If your parents, your caretakers, society at large has tried to instill in you this notion that you are connected to other people, that you are a member of a, of a larger group and that you should care about this, then very likely that's going to work. That's going to actually be part of who you are, right? I mean, it, never underestimate the importance of a good <laughs> education, especially a, a good moral education in that, in that sense. I do believe, however, that one can do that also later in life. Like, for instance, you know, in my own case, my parents weren't exactly that aware of the human cosmopolis and the importance of it. In fact, my father was a little bit on the selfish side of things. You know, I did have good influences when I was growing up, but my main caretakers, my parents, certainly were not, were not one of them. And so it took me longer, therefore, to sort of start realizing that, wait a minute, but there are certain things here that you need to think about. And, and it was some of my teachers, for instance, who actually had more of an influence, even later, teachers in you know, at high school or, or in college, and then some of my friends. And then at some point, I run into my own issues in life. You know, when I started hitting midlife crisis and I had problems happening that I didn't know how to deal with, um, that is what, what's stopped me in my track and said, wait a minute, there must be a way here to deal with these things. There must be a way to, you know, others, this, this certainly has happened to other people, right? I'm not unique. It's not like I'm the only one who lost my parents, for instance, to cancer. I'm not the only one who went through a divorce or anything like that, right? So how do other people do it? And that's where you start then reflecting on things and start learning about, about other approaches. And so you can still do it even, even fairly later in your life. But I think 
fundamentally, it boils down to these two things. The influences that you have in your life, especially early on, but not only. And then your own curiosity and ability to reflect critically on what you're doing and, and become curious enough to say, you know what, let me, I've heard of this thing called Buddhism or Stoicism. L let me learn, you know, let me pick up a book <laughs> and see what, what is it all about. I mean, in my case, of course, it was Stoicism that really resonated, even though I've looked into other philosophies of life. And when I did pick up my first book on Stoicism, it was immediate. It was like, whoa, okay, this makes sense to me. This, this is something that actually I can use. This is something that can make an impact beginning. How do you think some of these early figures came to some of these realizations of, I, I think of, which sounds pretty, pretty radical today, and maybe it was pretty radical before, of I'm a citizen of the world. Right. It definitely, it definitely was. And apparently, the first one who, who said that was Diogenes of Sinope, who was a cynic philosopher, although he may have been influenced by Socrates. It's not clear. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, tells us that Socrates came up with that phrase, you know, I'm a citizen of the world. But other sources say that it was actually Diogenes. It doesn't matter. The point is, it was somebody in ancient Greece who was, as you, as you just said, living in an environment where that was a strange thought because tribalism is much more natural to human beings. We've always lived in tribes, in small groups, and we've always had these insider versus outsider kind of mentality. We still have it today. That's where racism and xenophobia come from, right? The fact that, oh, you look different or you act differently, so you must be bad, or it's more likely you're bad. So we're still dealing with this, this issue. For somebody two and a half millennia ago to say, no, this is all crap. This is not my tribe or your tribe. This is, this is, we're all the same. We're all human beings. We all have the same wants and needs and desires and hopes and, and, and so on and so forth. Therefore, we better start acting like it. This was a stroke of genius. And, you know, I think that Diogenes of Sinope was the philosophical, you know, ethical equivalent of a Galileo who realized that, no, wait a minute, if I, if I drop these two things that have very different ways, but same, same mass from the Tower of Pisa, they're going to come down at the same time. And that was a stroke of genius, right? Nobody else had thought about, about that, but, but now we know it's true. And I think that I don't want to be too optimistic about human ethical progress, but we have, him. we have made some progress. And I think that that progress is in part due to the result, to, to the actions and to the thinking of people like Socrates and, and Diogenes. That's why it's, I think, still so important to write about, about those people and, and see what exactly they were thinking. You know, often people ask me, why should we bother with the Greco-Romans? or for that matter, with the ancient Buddhists or the ancient Confucians or whatever it is. Like, you know, these people have been dead more than two millennia. What do they have to teach to us? And if the question were asked in terms of science, let's say, you know, should I read, if I want to be a physicist today, should I read Aristotle? I would say, no, don't bother, because nothing that Aristotle wrote is actually correct at this point. I mean, if you're interested in the history of ideas, in the history of science, definitely. You should definitely look at Aristotle because he was a genius of it in his own regard. But in terms of modern physics, no, you're not going to learn modern physics or modern biology from Aristotle. But when it comes to ethics, things are different. The Greco-Romans, as well as the Confucians, as well as the Buddhists, had some intuitions about human nature and about how to deal with human beings that are still 
valid today for the simple reason that human nature has not changed. Human technology has changed. Human science has changed. We know a lot more and we can do a lot more today than we could two millennia ago. But in terms, when, when it comes to behave, you know, how we behave toward other people, and it's pretty much the same thing. We, we still have the same issues. We're still dealing with the same. I just mentioned racism and xenophobia. They existed, you know, 2,000 years ago. And guess what? They're still here today. So that's why the ancients have something to tell us. And of course, plenty of people since have also, you know, come about, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest to ignore philosophers that came on the scene after the Greco-Romans. But the Greco-Romans really got it started, and they, they got a lot of things still right today. And that's why it's a, they are a good reference point for our discussions. On Why do you think we maybe underestimate not only the difficulty of character development, but also maybe sometimes the need of it, I would suggest? I think of, you know, there's that common thing around driving, you know, nine people out of out of 10 think that they're a good driver. And, and maybe something like that applies when it comes to character and, and virtue. There's a lack of, a, of awareness right. for a need for improvement. That's right. I mean, exactly. That, that's exactly right. Many people... Many people think that they're better drivers than average. And of course, that's not possible <laughs> and by definition of average. And th the same goes for et ethics. I mean, one of the people that I mention a lot in, in, in my book, in the, in the Quest for Character, is Christian Miller, who wrote a book called, who is a psychologist and wrote a book called The Character Gap. And he's referring to exactly to this gap between the way we think we are and, and the way we actually are, right? There, there is a gap. And, and the question is, you know, how do you bridge the gap? How do you, how do you get there? How do you, because most of us want to be good people. It's, it's very rare the, the person that says, no, I really like to be evil. I really want to, you know, do evil things. I mean, even people with... That, that we might consider characterized by reprehensible morals, they probably think of themselves as actually good, as actually doing the right thing for the right reason. So, so, so there is a gap. And because, however, we all want, most of us at least, want to improve, then that's where the philosophy and the science of character improvement the quest for character, if you will, come into place, right? I mean, I don't think we need to teach people the notion of wanting to be good because that's, that kind of is built into you know, human, human instinctual nature. If by good we mean cooperating with other people, treating other people you know, reasonably, et cetera, et cetera. The question is, how do, we, how do we actually get there? And there is a parallel with other areas of life, right? So we all want to be healthy, for instance, but most of us are not. <laughs> and because we don't eat the right things, we don't exercise in the right way or in the right amount, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a gap there. There is a, there is a health gap. And we know how to fill it. It's not like we don't have any clue of how to you know, eat healthy or, or exercise, et cetera, et cetera. And we also, we, we do have pretty good ideas of how to improve our character. But the question is, or the issue is, it takes effort it takes you know a long time it's it's a lifetime it's a lifetime project if i want to be healthy i don't i don't just need a salad need to eat a salad today or a fruit today and then i'm done i eat i need to eat salad and fruit every day <laughs> for the rest of my life right? and that's where it becomes difficult and that's that's where it might be useful to read about it to be part of a community that 
that tries to go into that direction, you know, that, or, or to have guides that help you in going that it's really interesting because we don't necessarily do that in other domains and disciplines. Like you mentioned instruments early in the conversation, many people can recognize that it might take a tremendous amount of deliberate effort and practice to get to a certain level in a particular mm -hmm. instrument, but then be very comfortable in saying that there are other people that are farther down the path but when it comes to something like character or virtues, it seems like it's difficult for us to admit that there might be people that have, you know, traveled a bit further. To some extent, that's true. However, I think that it's more so, more true when, when we're talking about philosophers. Right? So I, don't, I really don't think today that too many people would say, oh, yeah, I need to go to a philosopher. Right? And open parentheses. You shouldn't go to a philosopher if by philosopher you just mean somebody with a PhD who teaches in a university because most of those, and I include myself in, in that group, I'm one of those, most of those people don't spend their time trying to improve their character or teach other people how to improve their character. They, they are academics. They, they're focused on very narrow, very specific you know, scholarship. But if by philosopher you mean somebody like Socrates, somebody who practices the, the, the art of living, yeah, I think that today, unfortunately, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. But on the other hand, I don't think people have that much trouble recognizing that there are people that at least allegedly are better than they are and, and from whom they should be seeking counsel. Lots of people go to a rabbi or a priest or, you know, or a psychologist or a psychotherapist or something like that. And so we, we do recognize expertise, even though maybe in some of those cases that recognition is actually based on false premises. But so there is this notion that, yeah, there are people who you know, might be able to give me advice on how to live a better life or, or, or how to act in these particular circumstances. It's just that you don't tend to think of a philosopher that way. And I mean, that's mm -hmm. in part the unfortunate consequence of the probably inevitable fact that modern philosophy is an academic discipline, as I said, that, that deals with very specialized and very non-practical things. But there is an increasing number of practical philosophers, you know, people who write and teach about philosophy as a way of life. And those are, I think, a good source, at least as good as a rabbi or a priest for, mm. for, for these kind of issues. When it comes to the role of mentorship, you, you write about these stories from history, Socrates, Alcibiades, Aristotle, and Alexander the Great, Seneca, and Nero. Is that the role of a, of a mentor, guide, needed? And I guess part two, why is it so difficult? Because some of those examples were not necessarily success stories. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I make the point in the book of going through some of the success stories and some of the not-so-success story because we do need to realize precisely what you just said, that this is not, a, not, an easy, not an easy task. I do think we need mentors for the same reason in ethics or in character development, for the same reason in which we, you need a teacher for music and, 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 or painting or, sculpt, or sculpting. It's the same idea. That is, there are people who are more advanced, who have thought about this stuff before, who have practiced especially these things before, and therefore they can provide us guidance. 
with guidance about it. So I do think that mentorship is crucial, although it doesn't have to be at the level of a Socrates. I mean, we have, there's lots of mentorship programs that are actually enacted even even in in modern society where, you know, you, you get to guide kids of a certain age or certain kinds of interests in, in about, about their problems in life at the moment. So mentorship, I think, is, is important, but it is difficult. That's right. Not everybody can be a mentor. And in fact, that's part of the problem that you need to think very seriously about, you know, am I up to this kind of thing? Because it's, it's a commitment. Now, the examples that I put in the book, especially the ones that don't work, I think illustrative of a couple of, of crucial points. For instance, why did Seneca fail with Nero? Even that, it's actually a questionable statement because it turns out the first five years of Nero's reign were actually pretty good. Seneca did succeed for for a time, but not ultimately, not in the long run. And why is that the case? Well, because Nero was simply not a good subject for this kind of thing. He, he was not interested. He was brought up in a household where he was taught by his mother who to be duplicitous and devious and you know to seek power and stuff like that. And so by the time he, Seneca got to him, even though he was just only 17, he was already probably too late. That is, a lot of the work, a lot of the damage had already been done. Similarly with Alexander, I mean, Alexander was actually a better student. Alexander, you know, the, the influence that Aristotle had on Alexander arguably was far more long-lasting and, and in a sense positive. But even Alexander, you know, it was a little late in, in his life once that Aristotle got, got to him. And that is why I emphasize the fact that we need to teach ethics or philosophy as a way of life to our kids when they're very young. Because if you wait until they're teenagers or in their 20s, that's a little late. Nevertheless, there are good cases like Marcus Aurelius, for instance. And what is obvious in those cases is that it's the student himself that seeks guidance, right? So if somebody comes to you because they want improve, they, they realize that they need guidance, as Marcus did, then the, the chances that you're going to succeed are far better. Even there, it's not, a, it's not a given. You know, the book starts out with the episode of, that gives the subtitle to the entire thing, the, the relationship between Socrates and Alcibiades. And Alcibiades did go to Socrates when he was a young man. Arguably, again, a little late, even in that case, actually. There is a chapter in the book where I go through the personal history of Alcibiades, and we, we start out when he was a kid. And it was pretty clear that there were certain character traits that were already going in a certain direction of, you know, brushness and, and seeking glory and seeking self, you know, self-aggrandizement and stuff like that. So even though Alcibiades realized that he needed Socrates, he just couldn't get through it. He couldn't, it was too hard for him to do what, what Socrates was telling him to do. So even when the person is actually aware that they need help, that doesn't mean that they're actually going to be effectively, effectively reacting, you know, responding to that help. But that's not surprising, is it? I mean, when, when we have in other fields, it happens in the same way. You know, when somebody, for instance, as a teacher, as a teacher of not, not practical philosophy, but an academic teacher... You know, I realized long time ago that I cannot reach every student. In fact, I cannot reach even most students, very likely, because they have 
different experiences. They have different priorities. Some of them can't wait to get out of the classroom because you know they're just taking the course because it's a, it's a requirement and they, their heart is not in, in it. And so what do I do? I try to do my best with all the kids, with all the students, but I get my own satisfaction out of those five or six or seven or whatever it is, which every single semester in every single class will be there, that I know that they're there because they're interested, they respond well, they, they flourish, they, they learn. And that's all I can do, right? I mean, it's not, it's not up to me to control the outcome. It's up to me only to make the effort. So I think the same goes in terms of improving your character. You can be a mentor, but you have to understand that that mentorship is not likely to work in several cases. It will work in some cases, and that's the ones that you need to be happy about. Yeah. You write in, in the book of how Socrates identified one of the, the issues with Alcibiades was this lack of basically following the inscription at, at Delphi, right. know thyself. And today, many listeners, m myself as well, you know, you hear know thyself. It can be open to interpretation. Like, how do Certainly. you take that? Is it possible to, to know yourself? How does one go about doing? It's not easy, which is why, of course, the, it was the, the top inscription at Delphi, right? It, it was the top priority. If it were easy, then you wouldn't need to write it down <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. And you, do, you wouldn't need a Socrates to remind you of it. It's not easy for a number of reasons. First of all, modern psychologists have shown that we have a tendency to rationalize things for ourselves rather than to think reasonably about, about it. I mean, we're, we're capable of, reason, of rational thinking. It's not like we're not. But a lot of the times we rationalize, we, we, we convince ourselves that a certain thing is right, even though it might not be, or that certain things is good for us while it might, it might not be good for us. So, so that's the first obstacle, that we fool ourselves very easily. It's not impossible to get beyond that. It's not impossible to, to face who you really are, but it's hard work. And it's hard work that requires help. The, the ancient Greco-Romans realized this, and that's why they came up with these notions of mentorship or role models or, or friends who are going to be helping you becoming a better person. You cannot do it yourself. Because if you try to do it yourself, it's too easy to, to fall into complacency and, and rationalizing. That's one reason it's, it's difficult. The other reason it's, that it's difficult to know thyself is because there is no essential self there to be discovered. Right? Sometimes we talk about it as if there was a kernel of Massimo, the real Massimo is right here in the back. And if I only could find out what that is, then, then I'm going to be happy and then I'm going to be fine. Right? It's like, no, there is no such a thing. The self, what we call the self, is not a stable, essential entity that defines who I am at all times. It's a dynamic process. It changes all the time. Right? I am in part responsible for who I am. I say in part because, of course, the, the, the rest of it comes from my genetic background that I inherited from my parents. It comes from my cultural background in which I was born and raised, etc., etc. But part of it is the result of my own decision-making. I'm part of the causal web of the universe, so to speak. I'm not just a puppet that, I'm, that, you know, that is being moved you know, passively. Part of the, the, the decision-making, part of the causal efficacy of the universe is my internal mechanisms of decision-making, my brain, my, my ability to think about stuff and make decisions. So the self is not a, a, a straightforward, unchanging 
target. And therefore, it's difficult to know thyself. You really, more than know thyself, one should say, you know, build yourself. That might be actually a better way to, to do it. You know, decide who, as Epictetus says, decide who you want to be and then start being that person, right? And that's mm-hmm. where philosophy really comes in. The question I think that we should be asking ourselves is, who do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? And once you have that clear in mind, and philosophy certainly is helpful for that, then you can start saying, okay, well, if I want to get there, what is the best way? What, are, what, are, what strategies work? What kind of practices work? Again, with, you, know, you, can, you can pick the analogy which the Greco-Romans often made with athletics. Right? So I want to be a disc, disc thrower or a, a long-distance runner or something like that. Well, those are two different things. And I need to train differently for it. You know, they require different kind of muscles, different, different kinds of exercise, and so on and so forth. So I cannot just decide to be an athlete, period. That doesn't mean anything. It's just too generic, right? It's like, well, what kind of athlete? What, 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 what do you want to do? And once you have make, made that decision, then you can start working. You can go to a mentor who specializes in that sort of stuff and, and say, okay, what, what do I do in order to be that, that kind of person? So, yeah, it is very difficult, but that doesn't mean it's not important. In fact, I would say precisely because it is difficult, you cannot take it for granted. And it's a good idea if, if we occasionally at least stop and think about who we want to be and how do we, do we get. Mm. I think that's really helpful, Massimo, the, the idea of, of build yourself It's reminded me of what you were talking about early in the conversation, though, of, you know, healthy eating something that just has to, you know, the fact that you ate healthy two weeks ago doesn't have a whole lot to do with right right now, you know, so it's a, it's a constant building, building yourself. And it's a good analogy, the one with healthy eating, because it also implies, makes immediately clear why you need guidance. You you can't just make up stuff as you, as you go. And there are experts, there are people who have thought about this stuff. So why do you want to reinvent the wheel, right? It's it's also immediately obvious why it is a long, long lifelong practice. You can't just do it for a short period of time. It also makes it clear another thing that that it's okay to cut ourselves some slack. You will slip up. You know, if you decide to eat and drink healthy, occasionally you'll be invited to a birthday party and you'll drink too much or you eat too much or both. That's okay. It's not like <laughs> oh well. That's it. I'm done. No more self-improvement because I slipped up <laughs> once. Yeah. No. And it's the same way with your character. I mean, yeah, occasionally you will be angry when you shouldn't be. Or you will be ungenerous instead of generous. Or you will be, you know, whatever, whatever negative behavior or non-social behavior, you might occasionally slip into it. And that doesn't mean you're a bad person. You're fundamentally a bad person. It doesn't mean that that negates all the, the improvements and all the progress that you made so far. It just means that you're, you're a human being. Oh, well, big surprise, <laughs> right? So cut yourself some slack. Maybe write that down in your philosophical diary of self-improvement. Say, you know, today didn't go very well, but tomorrow I'm going to do it this other way. I'm going to try to learn from my uh, slip up. Why, why did I slip up? Why... What is it that made me so angry or why did I act in a certain way? And you'll keep it in mind for the next time. Well, I love it. Our time has is, is flown by. I'm, I'm very grateful for your, for your time and wisdom. 
Let me ask you a, a wrap-up question, if I could. We normally ask, what is wisdom? And you provided a response to that so listeners can go back and, and listen. But I'm curious about what would you say has been the most you know, powerful or important philosophical exercise for you in your own quest for character? Oh, that's a good question. I think the most important and impactful exercise that I still do on a regular basis has to do with what Epictetus called the fundamental rule of life. Just from the name, it tells you that it's pretty important, right? <laughs> the, the fundamental rule of life. The fundamental rule of life is ask yourself, in any particular situation, ask yourself, is this up to me or not? That is, where, where does my agency lie? What, what can I actually do here as opposed to not? And, and I'll give you an example just from yesterday. So I, yesterday I, was, I spent the last week in, in Austria, in, in Vienna, because of a conference and uh, I'm visiting friends. And then coming back, of course, what happens? I get to the airport and the captain, the pilot, comes out and says, well, folks, bad news. You know, the, the plane is delayed and he explains what, what was happening and, and what was going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, immediately lots of people pissed off, right? Lots of people say, oh, can't, that can't be happening. You know, I, have, I need to be back. I have a connection, et cetera, et cetera. My, my first, because I've done this a number of times as an exercise, automatically now, the first question that comes to my mind is, okay, what is up to me here and what is not up to me? Is it up to me to change the situation on the ground? That is, can I actually make, make it so that the plane will leave on time? No, obviously not. That's not my job, <laughs> right? Great. So is it going to be useful if I start complaining and yelling and, and recriminating and all that sort of stuff? No, that's not going to be useful at all. All, all I'm going to do here is, in that case, is, is make it worse for myself and probably for somebody else. You know, the, after all, the, the pilot was nice enough to come in person. He didn't have to. He could have made an announcement, you know, and he came out in person and talked to us. So, no, that's not going to be. What I can do, on the other hand, is to take a break, go, go around the corner, have a drink, and then open my laptop and get some work done because now I got a couple of extra hours where I don't have anything else to do, which is exactly what I did. The result of it, of, of all of this was I didn't get angry. I didn't get abusive to other people, which is something that you can often, that often happens when you get angry, when you allow yourself to get angry. It's not just you. It's not just that it's, it's bad for you, for your own, you know, sort of health to be angry. It's that also you tend to slip up and, and, you know, berate other people that may not have, they may just be doing their job. They're not doing, it's not their fault, right? And in fact, on top of that, I actually got some work done. I, I wrote another, a new essay that is going to come out on Substack later this week. So there. So that is the exercise that I think has been by far the most useful in, in my mind. Sometimes that exercise is called the dichotomy of control because it has to do with what you control and you don't control. But I think it's a bad name. That's, that's not the term that Epictetus uses because once people start talking about control, then it's, it, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what do you mean control or not control. Maybe I can influence but not control. So forget about it. It's about what is up to, up to me or not up to me, meaning where does my agency lie? What can I actually do right here, right now, given the circumstances. And more importantly, or equally importantly, what I cannot do and make peace with, right? 
make peace with the fact that you're not going to be able to solve the specific problem of the, the delay in the airplane, and then you're fine. You're going to be fine. Well, I love it, and I greatly appreciate the practical example there. Your substack is is Figs in Winter. I highly recommend it. The book is The Quest for Character. Where would you point people interested in learning more about you or connecting with what you're up to in the world, Massimo? Oh, there is one place to go, and that's massimopilucci.org. It's a comprehensive website. You'll find everything that I do there. All right, great. Well, we'll link everything in the show notes. Massimo Pigliucci, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. 